As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Right now, Edward Morris, Global Head of Commodity Research at Citigroup, is public service to the nation a few years back. And, of course, Dr. Morse uh, on hydrocarbons, on oil, on the global view. Ed, I have never seen from you a more indirect note. Edward Morse, stealing from Thatcher, says expect the unexpected. Define the unexpected out there along a burgeoning, reopening Pacific Rim. Well, there are so many wild cards that are now abounding that it's really hard to know where to start. We can start with the China reopening, long, long anticipated, over anticipated. Now we're getting down to reality. The fact of the matter is that China may get back to where its oil demand growth was two years ago. China is on its way down. It's moving out of the world of oil consumption and it's almost, almost imminently there. After this recovery, I'd say it's the last hurrah for demand in China and close to the last hurrah for demand around the world. So that, for starters, is one of the things that's really impacting the market. I look, Ed, at the dynamics here. Is it a study of supply or a study, study of demand? Which is most important to you and your Citigroup team? I don't think we can separate them out at this moment. We're in a period of time when the world is definitively moving off of oil. We're coming out of a slowdown eventually, which will have a flash of oil demand. But it's really stunning to look at large countries. We look at the three major economies of the world. Europe's demand was down before the pandemic, and it's going to continue to go down. China's demand, if we look at major fuel uses, their demand for diesel peaked in 2015. They're coming back to a level that they're going to start retreating from. And indeed, we expect diesel demand in China to be lower this year than last year. And that's because of the surprise the world had with moving from natural gas, where prices were extraordinarily high, into diesel. And for China, that demand switch was between 300 and 500,000 barrels a day. And they're going back to natural gas now that prices have come back to earth. And then we look at the United States, and the stunning part of the U.S., at least in terms of weekly data, is that the U.S. demand is down below where it was a year ago. Uh, and U.S. exports are up significantly from where they were a year ago. The U.S., as a result partly of the release of strategic oil, but only partly because of it, has become by far 
the largest gross exporting country in the world. We're exporting close to 10 million barrels a day of oil, and that's after the SPR release was over. That's more than Russia. That's more than uh, that's more than Saudi Arabia. It's more than both countries combined. And our supply is way up. If we look at real liquids, oil, biofuels, natural gas liquids, yeah. and the gains we get for running, running our refineries full out, we're a 21 million barrel a day producing country. That's kind of extraordinary and nothing that we expected a year ago when this Russia-Ukraine conflict started and emerged. So let's take a step back because I'm curious how the Citigroup view of the world dramatically differs from the J.P. Morgan view of the next 10 years. Are you saying that demand is going down because of a lack of activity, a sort of more recessionary type of environment that perhaps the data points to? Or is it because of renewable energy, because of electric vehicles, because of alternate uses uh, that we've seen the transition really uh, accelerate simply since the pandemic? We actually have both going on. Yes, the transition is accelerating, and we can see that in electric vehicle sales, uh, particularly in China, where it's 39% of all sales in 2022, phenomenal growth in Europe, and the U.S. is really not far behind. But it's also something happening in the trade environment. We've seen obstacles to trade being put in place, starting in the Trump administration in the United States, followed by uh, what we call Bill, Chip, and Ira, the three extraordinary bills that were passed in the U.S. over a one-and-a-half-year period of time, which really moves to block trade and bring very, a various set of things home, not home only to the U.S., because Buy America also includes some 20 free trade agreement countries. We have Europe that was moving in the same direction, uh, and that started before Europe started mimicking the U.S. Uh, in trying to put forward something like the IRA. And we have China that, for energy and other security reasons, is pulling back from seaborne trade. So we have a retreat from trade that really started in 2018, 2017-18, uh, and, uh, and it's been reinforced with various mechanisms. So we're not going to see, with this recovery, we're not going to see this greater pull on demand coming back with a recovery. So yes, it's a little bit of both. So, Ed, how come you're recommending to investors that they go into commodities? This is an attractive place to go. It is an attractive place to go. And if we look at investments in, uh, in the renewable side, uh, they're blossoming. So the issue is where to go, where is the greatest opportunity, and where is the greatest danger. But if we look at the numbers on the uh, energy transition side, the world had gotten to around $850 billion worth of investment in 2021. And by we got the time we got through 2022, that investment turned out to be a trillion, 100 billion. Uh, and to compare that with oil capital spending, it peaked in 2014 at around $800 billion. So the, the opportunities are there. They're there in uh, carbon capture. They're there in hydrogen. They're there in the areas where this new technology is working. That includes industry. It includes transportation. It includes buildings. So the opportunities for investors is really high. Emphasize that by the uh, tax credits given and the direct subsidies offered by major governments in the world. Ed, this was wonderful to get your perspective as always. Ed Morse there of Citigroup. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is a joy and is incredibly well-timed. He is with the Bank of England or was with the Bank of England, and we're not going to ask him if the Bank of England is declaring uh, victory. But Spencer Dale has a unique portfolio to bring to us today. It is not only his work in economics at Wales in Warwick or Warwick? Help me. Warwick. Warwick. Thank you. Warwick. Good. It's good to know that. <laughs> but Spencer Dale also here with his work with the British Petroleum Group. Lord Brown has been someone that supported our economics for years, and we're thrilled that we can dovetail in what BP sees out there in energy with the heritage of British uh, petroleum. I thought Oswald Clinton Bernstein was great on the day where BP said, we're gonna have to walk away from all that we did on Russia. How big is the turmoil right now in global oil like a year ago when BP said, we've gotta walk away from Russia? I think the oil market remains very uncertain, but I think the biggest surprise over the last year is Russian exports of crude haven't changed. Um, you look now compared to um, a year ago, they're pretty much unaffected. Where they're being exported to has changed very dramatically. A lot of it was going to Europe. And you've seen an almost massive shift away from Europe now, particularly with the ban into uh, uh, India in particular and China. But overall flows of Russian oil pretty much unaffected. Everybody has to lean forward when BP studies, studies this, and you do this within your annual survey as well. What is the distinction we have to know about Mr. Putin and the cash coming in from his oil sales? So I think we spent quite a long time thinking about how the war may affect energy markets. And, that, and I think the way, the simplest way I think about this, if you sat in the ballroom of BP or in government officials around the world a year or two ago, all the conversation was about the importance of decarbonising the energy system, the race to get to net zero. Mm -hmm. That urgency stays, but the war has been a sort of collective reminder about the other things energy systems need to generate. So they need to give us energy security and they also need to give us energy affordability. You put those three things together. So energy economists will often talk about security, affordability and sustainability as the energy trilemma. You can't solve a trilemma, but the, points, the importance of the trilemma is you need to balance all three of those different elements if you're going to have a successful and enduring transition. And I think there is a danger that prior to the war, the world had come focusing on just one element and had lost touch in those other two. We heard from Ed Morse of Citigroup earlier today, and he was talking about a pretty radical view that Chinese and global oil demand may be close to its peak and is probably on its way down because of the trilemma and how different economies are trying to solve it with other forms of energy. Do you agree? So I guess two things about China. One is 
in the near term, everybody's been surprised by just the, the pace at which the China's relaxation of the COVID policies happened. And so we've revised up their views of, uh, of oil demand growth this year. Um, so a story, if you look at most people now, they would the consensus out there would have oil demand growth of about 2 million barrels a day this year. Of that, around half of that is China. So they're massively important in the near term. The, the story, which I guess relates to Ed's piece, is when you think about energy security, countries worrying more and more about energy security, a natural instinct will be to say, I want to reduce my level of imports I'm, uh, I'm, I'm making of energy and instead boost my domestic energy. Um, and the nature of that is most domestic energy from many parts of the world, including in, in China, is non-fossil fuels. It's, it's wind, it's solar, it's nuclear, it's hydro. Most of the energy that you import in the round, around the world, particularly in China, is oil and gas. And so this, one of the stories that we have in our, in our outlook is we think the war is likely to accelerate the energy transition because of this energy security effect. Import less oil and gas, boost your domestic renewables. And that's and that has a positive in terms of the energy transition. It's such an important point when people look at commodities as almost a proxy for global growth. If the economy does well, supposedly oil prices should go up. If the economy goes into recession, oil prices should go down. Are you getting on board with the idea that oil prices can stay low even with a decent global economy because of all of these alternative forms of energy? So I think um, one is, is those alternative forms of energy. We've also seen a, a key factor which I think helps to balance markets is what's happening here in America in terms of US title, US share oil, and the nature of those businesses. And at one point, they were able to sort of act as a moderating influence on, on oil prices. I think the nature of those business models, you guys I'm sure have talked about it a long time, has changed now. Far more focus on giving returns back to shareholders, reinvesting less. And as a result of which, I think that's caused the sort of the price at which those rigs start to come on to be higher now than than it was a year or two ago. Spencer, where does coal consumption fit in here, particularly in Europe? So I think coal consumption in, in the near, very near term has gone up, essentially as you've been scrambling around uh, for resources. But further out, I think we're seeing a story in Europe of a mass uh, movement away from, from that coal and seen very significant reductions in sort of coal-fired power generations in the UK, in, in Europe. And, and I think that, that trend, I don't think, is going to go away. There's three factors behind Europe's better performance. That's consuming less gas, bringing coal back online, and just the fact the weather has been milder. Do you see Europe being able to repeat that act next winter, the winter after that, the one after that? And I think that's a key point, John, is... Um, the underlying story is still that the Europe and the global market is short of, of natural gas. In some sense, we got a lucky break this year because the weather was very mild. You come through next winter um, and there's no guarantee that's going to happen. And so that market remains very fraught. There is some signs, both in terms of the sort of residential heating and in terms of the way businesses are using natural gas in Europe, that, that that's declined. And so some of that may persist. But that underlining vulnerability that the world, that Europe needs to import an awful lot more of its gas via global markets rather than via Russia means that that shortage is there. And so prices today we say, well, that's great. They've come down a lot. They're still double what they used to be. They're still roughly about five times higher than in America. And that's a good time. And there's a risk that they can go higher if we see um, a sort of cold winter next year. We've got 40 seconds. You can do the Bank of England or Chelsea. It's your choice. Um, I think Chelsea is just a waiting <laughs> game. And, I, and I'm 
fully behind the team and I think this time next year I'll have a big smile on my if, face. If there John, we go. If John and I are there, Tots Chelsea here on Sunday, can you get us into the BP box? I wish. Or, yeah, I, I tell you what, if you were, I'd be fighting you first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Spencer, this Just, is great. Let's do it more often. Spencer Dow there. Thank you. Of the BP group and formerly, of course, of the Bank of England. Ben Laidler joins us now, Global Market Strategist at eToro. Ben, if we can just kick off by asking for your comments on that, because I imagine you might see things differently. I'll read it again. The bear market rally that began in October from reasonable prices and low expectations has morphed into a speculative frenzy based on a Fed pause pivot that isn't coming. What do you say to that, Ben? I guess I respectfully and partly disagree. I I think this rally has been very fundamentally driven. It's been this easing inflation and interest rate shock uh, and less bad growth data, which you've you've just been talking about. I I think that's very fundamental. I guess what I would would agree is there's going to be a pause. I mean, you cannot annualize the degree of performance we've had this year. I mean, that would take you to twice what the S&P 500 has ever done in a year. And Maybe some of the disruptive tech names, which are up on average you know, by a third this year, even more than that off the October lows. I mean, with bond yields now rising and investor sentiment, you know, maybe not as depressed. I mean, those are absolutely uh, a breather. Yeah. Ben, just as the VIX is a measurement here, and I know we went out to a 25 level in December, but we've had a spike up in the VIX showing the angst out there. We're back above uh, 22, 22.40. Does Ben Laidler's shift from a measured bull to a more outrageously optimistic bull as the VIX adjusts? Well, I think we can argue that the VIX is, is probably a sort of broken indicator here. But, um, I, I mean, we would definitely be pulling back on on some of the higher risk elements of the market here. I mean, I just said, you know, if you've been lucky enough to ride that sort of 50% disruptive tech rally off the October lows, I think now is the moment to rotate into cheaper, more cash flow sort of defensive bits of the market. Uh, I think October was the low. I think this is very fundamentally driven, you know, but these higher bond yields are beginning to put a ceiling on valuations. And what was extraordinarily depressed in investor sentiment three or four you know, months ago is, you know, now less depressed than that has been the sort of gasoline that's been poured on this on this rally in the last um, uh, in, in the last few months. Ben, is this a question then of leadership in the <clears throat> equity rally and where you see it coming from and a shift there? Or is this a question of you becoming perhaps less optimistic than you have been in the fat past because of the challenge to the leadership we've seen year to date? I think the drivers are just different. Um, you know, we've seen a lot less growth risks. I think earnings are becoming less of a concern now with all the data that, that you're seeing. But uh, we're seeing a cap coming in from valuations. And the rally this year has all been driven uh, by valuations. Mm. With bond yields now rising, our sort of fair value PE for the S&P 500, you know, it's down at 15, 16 times. It's not sort of 18. Now, that's an issue in the U.S. That's much less an issue in the rest of the world. You know, why has Europe been the best performing region in the world this year? Yes, yeah. you've had a sort of growth story, but you're coming off, you know, 11, 12 times earnings. So I think, you know, it's cheaper, more cash flow generative stocks that are less exposed to this sort of potential right. valuation reset. Ben, I got to be rude here and take every advantage of your time as an award winning strategist at HSBC. They're in the news here. And I'm fascinated, Mr. Laidler, if you feel you can envision a separated HSBC into their Asian business, which generates 72 or 78 percent of profits and everything else in London. Can Ben Laidler believe there could ever be separate HSBCs? I don't know. I I think history tells you that when you have these, you know, these big companies and you try and split them up, especially in regulated businesses like banks, 
you know, it's not so it's impossible, but it's it's certainly um, it, it, it's certainly difficult. Um, but you know, the broader point there, I think, I mean, they reported seemingly great numbers today, right? And and that's been leading. You know, banks have been performing very very well. You touched on it with with CS, which hasn't been performing well, but this combination of strong earnings beats, higher interest rates, and you know, well under book value valuations is, is, you know, a pretty attractive proposition. And, you know, we touched on Europe earlier. It's been leading the European rally. Let's say you address that question, Tom, without addressing that question. Did you like that? Did I address it? I addressed it. I didn't want, you know, I want Ben to come back. (laughs) Of of HSBC. Ben Laidler there. Ben, thank you, sir. Ben, thank you. Ben Laidler of eToro. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is something we love to do at Bloomberg Surveillance, and that is talk to securities analysts with esteemed experience. She goes back to Lehman. Karen Short joins us now with Credit Suisse to say she's an analyst, barely describes the trophies on the mantelpiece, including the very challenging Starmine uh, Awards. Karen Short, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. I want to start at the top of the income statement. When you look at unit and price dynamics at big retail, what do they look like? Hi, thanks very much for having me. Um, well, I mean, I think, as you said, Walmart, this is one of the Walmart's better quarters on top line. Um, the issue is flow through, really, on bottom line. And then that translates into the guide, implied guide for um, the P&L for 20, calendar 23. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we have two big box retailers out there today, this morning, Home Depot and Walmart, slightly different tails uh, on retail. Um, Walmart's clearly seeing trading in, but Walmart's clearly also seeing a higher cost serve, as is Home Depot. And that's the biggest question is these essential retailers that have all benefited for the last three years. What is the sustainability on the P&L on actual operating profit margins? relative to top-line growth that they've gained and sustained. And it just appears that it's a higher cost to serve. Do they use traditional retail management practices to adapt and adjust, say, into the back-to-school holiday season? Or can Karen Short say this time is different for big-box retail? I personally think this time is different for big box retail from the perspective that, you know, we we were very neutral on almost our entire coverage universe when we initiated in December. And I think the issue is is that 
some investors believe that the top line just will naturally flow through to a higher margin structure. And I don't think that's the case. I think the problem that retailers are going to face is that it's just a higher cost to serve. And margin structure may be just much very similar to pre-pandemic levels on a much higher sales base because costs keep flowing through. And case in point, you know, Walmart called it out, obviously, earlier prior to reporting on labor. And Walmart did, or sorry, Home Depot did today in terms of their billion-dollar investment in labor. Cost of service just going up and margin structures may not be any better structurally than they were pre-pandemic, despite, you know, 20, 30, 40% sales improvements per box, depending on which retailer you're talking about. Is this a story that really goes across the retail sector? Are you basically seeing the same margin pressures in Walmart and Home Depot, or is it more in Home Depot, less in Walmart? Do you expect it to not necessarily be consistent throughout the retail complex? I don't think it's consistent. I think what you really have to look at is some retailers really leaned into to investing during their sales gains. So tractor supply, for example, um, really leaned in and did not flow through margins. They invested, 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 and their margin structure hasn't really changed. And I'm talking about operating margins when I say margins, um, didn't change much, even with a much higher sales base. Other retailers, and I'm not saying this about Walmart and Home Depot necessarily, but other retailers definitely harvested. And I think what's catching up to many retailers is you couldn't, you should never harvest your sales gains. You always have to reinvest. And the better retailers have reinvested. I mean, Walmart clearly has reinvested in wages. They announced that several weeks ago. Home Depot just announced another wage investment. But, you know, I think retail investors are going to be shocked by the fact that, you know, that those massive margin increases across much of retail are just going to be completely imploded and probably even be down relative to pre-pandemic levels because costs to do business have gone up. And sales are, you know, maybe higher, maybe not, depending on the retailer. Well, Karen, let's talk about that. So the cost of served is going up. Got it. Margin structures won't be any better than pre-pandemic. Got it. They might be worse. Got it. Let's just lean on something else you said. Whether it's coming off a bigger or smaller revenue base. Karen, what are the retailers you think around there that can offset some of that margin pressure with just better top line growth? Um, I mean, obviously, so my coverage is essential retail. So it's, you know, I, I can't comment across much more discretionary. But within my coverage, I mean, I would say that the big, sorry, the, the club stores. So like if you take a Costco and a BJ's, um, their deleverage and or leverage points are so much lower because their fixed costs are so much lower. So like a Costco and a BJ probably has more ability to retain um, margin improvement. But the rest of the retailers, I, I think you have another investment cycle coming. I mean, I think you have that for the dollar stores. Um, obviously, we just heard from Walmart and Home Depot that they will have that. I mean, I, I think you'll probably hear that from Target. Um, I think you could hear that from Best Buy. I, I mean, I, I just think across the board, there is another investment cycle coming. And I don't think that you could talk... I don't think I could point to many retail names that I cover that will have up EBIT or up EPS, even if sales are flat to slightly up. Karen, this was amazing to catch up with you. Thank you. Karen Short there of Credit Suisse. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. 
on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.